Let us pray. Father, today as we celebrate your church, as we celebrate the communion of the saints, the fellowship we have with all the saints, we pray that you would remind us that the church is built upon the chief cornerstone of Christ Jesus himself, that we are living stones that you are assembling into a house in which you will dwell for all eternity. Oh, Father, may we come to better understand the glory of what it is to be your covenant people, your royal priesthood, your holy ones. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom, our tradition, uh, every year on All Saints Sunday, the first Sunday of November, to take a look at some great figure or event or movement from church history. Uh, we don't do this because we're interested in historical trivia, and I hope the things we cover are not trivial. Uh, we do this because it's crucial for us to know the story of God's kingdom, the story of God's faithfulness, the story of God's grace down through the ages. Uh, actually, I think you could say that in studying figures from church history, we're really just imitating the model of Scripture itself. Uh, in Scripture, we find that the biblical authors regularly using past history to teach present lessons. And that's what we hope to do. Uh, today, we're going to look at one of my favorite characters from church history, and he really was a character in every sense of the term. Uh, there are some saints who are perhaps better known than they ought to be, other saints who are less known than they, than they ought to be. Uh, our saint today really falls into that latter category. He's not nearly as well known as he ought to be. Uh, he comes down to us in history uh, by the name of Boniface, uh, but his given name was Winfrith. Uh, Winfrith was born into a noble Scots family around the year 680. He was born in a region in England where the old Celtic church had been dominant. Uh, the Celtic church, under the leadership of men like Patrick and Columba, had really developed rather independently of the church that was uh, finding itself more and more centered uh, on Rome. Uh, within the Celtic church, priests were allowed to marry. They had their own distinctive set of customs and festivals and symbols. Really, you could say, their own Christian culture. Uh, the, the Celtic Christians, really, you could say, were, uh, were great warrior poets. Uh, in a lot of ways, we could compare them to King David, uh, in terms of, of, of King David's style, spirituality. Uh, the Celtics uh, were very, very similar. Uh, Winfrith, or I'll, I'll just call him Boniface throughout the talk this morning, Boniface's family was Saxon, not Celtic, but Boniface was raised in a Christian home in this very Celtic Environment, a Celtic Christian environment, you could say. Uh, about 20 years before his birth, uh, the Celtic church had actually come into communion with the Roman church, and so the Celtic church was being assimilated into the Roman church, but the Celtic ways still persisted. The Celtic ways uh, were, were, were continuing on uh, at this point in history. Uh, when he was older, Boniface recalled his childhood uh, several interesting things. Uh, for example, he recalled that uh, the pastor in his youth would uh, set his sword on the altar while he preached, and then he would strap it back on right after the sermon. 
Uh, and so I imagine that you questioned or criticized the sermon at your own risk. <laughs> Uh, when he was older, he recalled as a young man uh, that when the, the church would have these monthly festivals, probably a lot like, you know, we do, we do a monthly lunch together, something like that, a monthly uh, fellowship feast together that the church would have. Uh, the boys would get together and their uh, way of recreating, their pastime was throwing boulders at each other. All right, I don't know how big these rocks were, but that's how they're described as boulders. Uh, so you could say that in his youth, he was a rather typical Christian for his time and place. Uh, he was a pious young man, but it was a rowdy kind of piety. And I think that's helpful for us. It's instructive for us to, to see that. Our understanding of piety in the modern church tends to be so effeminate that we have a hard time relating to a character like this, a Christian like this. The robust, even reckless Piety of a man like Boniface, you could say, is something we need to recover. He was a manly Christian. Again, I, I think of him as a kind of warrior poet, a lot like uh, I imagine King David to have been. You know, you, you read about King David in the book of Samuel, and it seems like he's writing poetry one day and killing wild beasts the next. Uh, I think Boniface would have been very much at home in that kind of context. Uh, as he grew up in his village, he uh, became known as the toughest and smartest kid around. He was certainly very precocious. Uh, as early as the age of five, Boniface asked his parents if he could enter the monastery. Uh, he was very intelligent and was probably drawn to the monastery because that was about the only way you could learn to read and write, is if you went to the monastery and studied there. Boniface's father was actually a rather wealthy merchant, and he wanted his son to follow in his footsteps. But his father had a bout with a rather severe illness and attributed his recovery to the prayers of monks. And so when he recovered, he changed his mind and sent his boy to the monastery at Exeter in Wessex, which is on the southern coast of England. And there in the monastery, Boniface really came into his own. He excelled. He learned how to pray, how to chant the Psalms. He mastered Latin grammar and, in fact, wrote, as far as we know, the first Latin grammar uh, on the island of, of, of England. Uh, by age 20, he had read all the books in the library at Exeter. I don't know how many books there were. I don't know how great of an accomplishment that was. But he was certainly absorbing and learning as much as he could. Over time, he showed himself to be a great preacher, he discipled other young men. He cared for the poor and sick. He was a tremendous administrator. But something was missing. He said, I yearn to go forth where the dangers are, not because I particularly enjoy those dangers, but because I know it is there that the battle rages for the souls of men and nations. God set me before the front lines. Let me not end my days in comfort and complacency. Here you have a man who is excelling in his present context as a monk. Uh, he has a rather quiet life, you could say, a rather comfortable life doing all those monkish things. And his prayer to God is, Lord, send me to a place of danger. Send me to the front lines. And so at the age of 40 or thereabouts, he left behind the quiet academic life of the monastery to go and evangelize the pagan tribes of Germany. Now, you need to understand that at this time in history, 
Central Europe uh, was really a swirl of savage tribal peoples constantly fighting and warring with one another. They were brutal. They were barbaric. Uh, they did not hesitate to shed blood. Missionaries had gone to the Germanic or Teutonic peoples before, uh, but had had very little success. Uh, one veteran missionary became a friend of Boniface, as he was also from Exeter. Uh, his name was Wilford. Wilford had gone to uh, the realm of the Saxons and the Frisians on the continent of Europe around the year 600. And he described the mission field there this way. He said, these lands are fields of iron and plowing them will break a man. Of course, to someone like Boniface, hearing that <laughs> was more like a dare than anything. He, he saw that as just the kind of challenge that he was eager to take up, just the kind of danger and difficulty he was yearning uh, to throw himself into. And so Boniface left the island of England for good around the year 720. He made an initial missionary tour through uh, through Frisia, which is modern-day Holland, and then journeyed down to Rome to ask the Pope to commission him for this work. The Pope thoroughly examined this middle-aged man. It was kind of unusual for a middle-aged man to show up and say, I want to be a missionary to the barbarian peoples of inner Europe, and yet that's what Boniface was doing. Uh, the Pope examined him and found him to be full of vigor and zeal for the work. Uh, the Pope found him to be fully orthodox in his faith, and so Boniface was sent forth. Uh, in fact, it was the Pope at this point who gave him the name Boniface, which means good work or doer of good. Uh, Boniface would never return to his homeland, but he did carry on an extensive correspondence with friends and family back home, as well as extensive correspondence with Rome. Much of what we know about his life and his ministry is from these letters, as well as biographies that began to be written shortly after he died. For the next 30 years, he labored tirelessly as a missionary to the pagan tribes scattered through the forests and mountains of modern-day Germany. Every time he opened his mouth to preach the gospel, he laid his life on the line. Every day he faced new dangers. He was evangelizing a violent, bloodthirsty people. A, a, a people who were deeply distrustful, a people who were hostile to him and to his message. They had encountered missionaries before. They knew what a missionary was. They did not like missionaries. Uh, the pagan warlords saw him as subverting their authority as he came forth preaching the lordship of Christ. The pagan priests and warlocks saw him as a threat to their livelihood. But Boniface persisted. He persevered and indeed had considerable success. One historian summarizes Boniface's work this way. The bold missionary character of the medieval church is best revealed to us in the life and character of Boniface. Here we see all the attributes of the bold adventurer, the erudite academic, the pious monastic, the astute politician, and the courageous warrior, all in a single man and a singular ministry. Boniface is all these things wrapped together. The bold adventurer, uh, the, the, the one who is able to articulate the faith in a, in a winsome and, and truthful way, uh, the one who shows forth true devotion to God, true holiness, the one who can organize people and plant churches, the one who has courage to go and do this kind of work on this kind of frontier. 
Uh, there were a group of historians who came together and published a book on Boniface's life in 1980. They entitled the book, The Greatest Englishman. That's how they viewed Boniface's legacy. Certainly there have been a lot of great Englishmen down through history, but these historians considered Boniface the greatest. That was their assessment of his place in history. Uh, Christopher Dawson, who is an absolutely excellent medieval historian, described Boniface's work this way. He said Boniface had a deeper influence on the history of Europe than any other Englishman who has ever lived. Dawson said understanding Boniface is really the key to understanding the origins of Europe as Europe. He's really the key to understanding the origins of Western Christendom. Indeed, Dawson called him the founder of Western Christendom. Here is a man who's being called the founder of a Christian civilization. Now, are those claims for Boniface exaggerated? Perhaps. We can certainly point to uh, other uh, great figures who played comparable roles, but there's no doubt that Boniface was a great man who did a great work for God's kingdom. What exactly did Boniface do that was so worthy of all these accolades? There's a couple incidents for which he is best known, and these incidents really opened the door for him to exercise tremendous influence on the world. For Boniface, evangelism was not just a matter of standing on a street corner handing out tracts. That may be the way we sometimes think of evangelism. But for Boniface, it was not so. For him, evangelism was a matter of spiritual warfare. It was taking on the principalities and powers, the demonic hosts. It was announcing that the old pagan gods had been dethroned, that Christ is now king. Sometimes Boniface would engage in what you might call prophetic theater. Kind of like what we read about this morning in 1 Kings chapter 18. Kind of like what the prophet Elijah did when he took on the idol Baal and his priests. Elijah challenged the priests of Baal to a contest, and Elijah and his God proved to be victorious. Boniface did that kind of thing. When he was going to evangelize the Hessians, he publicly announced that he would destroy their gods. He was challenging their gods the same way Elijah challenged Baal. And so when all the people were gathered to worship their god Thor, uh, Boniface marched toward the sacred grove where Thor, the god of thunder, was worshipped at his great oak tree on top of Mount Gutenberg. Boniface, when he arrived on the scene in front of all of these onlookers, took out his axe and began to chop down Thor's oak. Here's this sacred oak tree where worshipers of Thor have gathered for generations. Boniface walks up to it, pulls out an axe and begins to chop it down. And of course, the pagans gathered around are horrified. They're expecting immediate judgment to fall. They're expecting Thor to swing his hammer and crush Boniface, to strike him with lightning. According to one account that we have, after a few swings of his axe, a mighty wind began to blow through the treetops and the great oak of Thor crashed to the ground. And suddenly the pagans realized their gods were not strong enough to protect their own sanctuary. They realized a stronger god had arrived. They converted in mass on the spot. Christ had conquered Thor. 
Boniface took the wood from Thor's oak and used it to build a chapel to house worship of the living God, the true God. Now, it's interesting to think about this. The God Thor being defeated by Christ. You know, all of our days for the different names of the week all come from different pagan gods. I mean, you probably, you know, you may not have thought about this, but Thor has his day of the week. Thursday comes from Thor's day. Now, see, here's the thing. Thor has long since been forgotten. Nobody worships Thor anymore. Nobody serves Thor anymore. Boniface took care of that once and for all. In Hosea 2.17, the Lord says of the gods of the pagans, their names shall be forgotten. We still have Thursday, but it no longer belongs to Thor. Like every other day of the week, it belongs to Christ. Boniface took on Thor and conquered him. He drove out the idol Thor. One of the lessons from his life that I think we can take with us, and a question we have to ask is this. What idols are in the world around us? What idols around us need to be chopped down? What false gods need to be humiliated and driven out? The idols of our culture don't tend to be idols of wood or stone, but we certainly do have our idols. Where are the Christians who are sharpening their axes to cut down those idols, to cut down those false gods? Boniface took on the idols of his day and through the power of Christ's gospel conquered. Well, word of this began to spread. And three days after Boniface's confrontation over Thor's oak, a young boy from a nearby village ran into the missionary camp of Boniface and with a panicked look on his face announced that his young sister was to be sacrificed that very night. Now again, you have to understand, this is a very common thing. Vestal sacrifice, human sacrifice, these things were just a way of life for these pagan peoples. They were barbaric, they were savage. Uh, this is how they would satisfy their God, by offering human blood, particularly the sacrifices of young virgin girls. Well, Boniface and the boy hurried back through the snowy woods and arrived at the place of sacrifice just in time to see the Druid priest raising his knife to slay the girl. Just as the knife was coming down, Boniface threw himself between the priest and the girl. Boniface was wearing a wooden cross and the knife landed in that wooden cross rather than in the girl. This pagan priest, this Druid priest, fell back in anger and shrieked in amazement and horror The people who were gathered there to witness the sacrifice were awestruck. They fell silent. Boniface seized the moment and began to preach the gospel to them. He said there was no need for human sacrifice because the ultimate and final human sacrifice had already been offered by the Son of God on the cross. His blood satisfied the wrath of the true God, the living God, and so there was no need for further Bloodshed, the wrath of God had already been appeased. Boniface then took the priest's sacrificial knife and began to cut off the low-hanging branches of the evergreen trees that were all around. 
And he's doing this as he's preaching the gospel. He tells the people to take these evergreen branches home as a memorial of Christ's death on the cross as a reminder that Christ himself is the tree of life. His cross is our tree of life. He is the final sacrifice. Indeed, as night fell, Boniface's followers who had gathered there began to light candles so he could continue preaching into the darkness of the night. This happened right at the beginning of Advent season. And it is considered the origin of the Advent wreath tradition that we celebrate down to this day. We use wreaths, we use Advent wreaths and candles as part of our Advent uh, celebration and preparation for Christmas. Also really considered the beginning of the use of a Christmas tree, an evergreen tree, to celebrate Christmas. These pagans had worshipped around oak trees. Boniface replaced that with the evergreen, not to worship the tree, but to say this tree can serve as a symbol of Christ who is the tree of life, whose death on a tree covers our sin, secures our forgiveness, secures our salvation. This is so, so important. Uh, I think it's so important in our own context to know these kinds of stories. You know, sometimes we will uh, hear people say that various Christian uh, customs, uh, when it comes to things like Christmas, various Christmas customs that we have, really have pagan origins. And, and that kind of argument is used to discredit these traditions and, and perhaps even to say, look, if Christians got their customs from paganism, maybe they got a lot of their ideas and doctrines from paganism as well. Secularists would love for you to think that. It, it, it's a very powerful way of discrediting the Christian faith in our day to say these Christian customs really don't have Christian origins. They really have pagan origins. And perhaps Christian doctrines and Christian ideas really come from paganism as well. See, we need to realize that when we're told that Christians borrowed customs from the pagans, really this is just another facet of the culture war. Part of me wants to say, hey, if Christians borrowed customs from the pagans, so what? I mean, to me, that's not any different than Boniface chopping down Thor's oak tree and then using that wood to build a Christian chapel. Take what is pagan and reclaim it for Christ. Put it to its proper use. And there are certainly cases where Christians did this. But in many cases, we ought not to concede the point. See, what pa- trees are not what pagans say they are. Trees are what God says they are. And one thing you see all throughout Scripture is God uses trees symbolically. He uses trees to symbolize his kingdom. He uses trees to symbolize his Messiah. He uses trees to symbolize the godly man. Can there be any doubt that the evergreen is a fitting symbol of the life-giving Messiah? A fitting, an evergreen tree, a fitting symbol of the life that comes through the tree of the cross, eternal life. There can't be any question about the fittingness of that. See, Boniface's legacy lives on in the church's Advent and Christmas Traditions. Those traditions, certainly, we, we, they're not mandatory. Christians don't have to do these things. But they're fitting, fitting symbolism. Useful ways of impressing upon ourselves and upon our children and showing the world around us what the Christian gospel is all about. That Jesus Christ, through his death on the tree of the cross, gives us eternal life. That the tree of death has now become a tree of eternal life. Because of the one whose blood 
was shed. Well, Boniface carried on this mission. His mission to the pagans was slow. It was grueling. It was challenging. It was dangerous. But it was ultimately successful. He planted churches. He trained new pastors. He established monasteries. He built small libraries to civilize the pagans and inculturate them in the Christian way of life. He plowed the field of iron and it did not break him. He broke it. And indeed, his success as a missionary opened doors for influence outside his immediate area of work. Charles Martel, you may know him as Charles the Hammer. He was the ruler of the Franks, what we would call modern-day France. And he heard of Boniface, and so he summoned Boniface to Trier, where he had set up court. Uh, Martel, at this point, had had some uh, exposure to Christian teaching, but as best we can tell at this point, he was an Arian. Uh, Ar- Arianism was an ancient Christian heresy uh, that denied the full deity of Christ. It was taught by Arius in the early church, and it had been refuted by various church synods and councils, but Arianism continued to persist, and Martel was apparently an Arian. Boniface came to Martel, and preach the gospel to him. The gospel of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God in human flesh, being crucified for the sins of his people. Martel was dramatically converted and then shortly afterwards went to fight one of the most important battles in history, the famous Battle of Tours, in which he turned back the Muslim invasion and stopped the spread of radical Islam. This is in 732. Had Martel not defeated the Muslims, likely Islam would have engulfed all of Europe. And there's no question, history would have been very, very different. Many historians, when they look at Martel, the the vision that he had, the hope that he had, you can't win a battle without vision and without hope. Many historians, when they look at how Martel waged that battle and won that battle, they look at the vision that he had, the hope that sustained him, They point to Boniface really as the source. Boniface is the one who emboldened Martel to go and face the Muslims, gave him a hope that he could indeed conquer. And so yes, Martel led his victory, led his army to victory, rescuing the West from certain disaster, and indeed paving the way for a united Europe and the development of of Western civilization, which we could call Christendom. But behind all of that, stands Boniface. Martel actually became a supporter of Boniface's work. Uh, Martel was then succeeded by his son, Pepin the Short. And Boniface and Pepin together began to organize the church in Central Europe. Together they called the Germanic Concilium, a a, a council uh, in 742, the first council of church leaders in the Frankish kingdom, and that included these newly converted areas in Central Europe. It organized the church. It secured an umbrella of protection for the church. It helped to establish Boniface as an archbishop and metropolitan uh, over this region and its cities. And This council and the others that came after it called upon the pagan peoples of the region to give up their pagan practices and to embrace the gospel of Christ. 
Indeed, there are many historians who consider this council Boniface's greatest accomplishment because it really consolidates and congeals all his effort, all his other efforts. It's really the capstone of his efforts to Christianize this part of Europe. And indeed, in many ways, uh, the uh, development of Europe as Europe, that is, Europe as a unified continent sharing a common Christian civilization. This is really the work of Boniface. Boniface discipled Pepin the Short, uh, worked very closely with him, and then, of course, Pepin's son was Charlemagne, uh, who became really, you could say, the first truly Christian king over united, Christianized Europe. And so you can say the whole Carolinian house and, and, and the Christian legacy that's there, in many ways, uh, that is because of Boniface. Boniface had a tremendous impact upon the faith of the Carolinian kings and the growth of the Christian church in Europe in this period of history. Again, as Christopher Dawson, the great historian, said, laying the foundation for a Christian Europe, a Christian civilization. This is why Boniface became, really, you could say, a larger-than-life character. Uh, why the legend of Boniface grew to mythic proportions because of these accomplishments. Well, in the year 754, Boniface, now in his 70s, felt like his work among the Germanic peoples was complete and so he desired to return to the place of his first missionary endeavors, uh, Frisia, uh, what we would think of now as, as modern-day Holland. And so he went to the Frisians, and he met with much more success than he did before. But he also met with martyrdom. Uh, on the eve before he was to baptize a group of new converts, this would be, uh, he was going to baptize them on Pentecost Sunday, on the night before he was to baptize these new converts, a local warlord and his army besieged Boniface's missionary camp, and he was slaughtered along with the rest of his men. Some of them wanted to fight back, but Boniface told them, my children do not fight let us overcome evil with good. Let us follow the example of our Lord in Gethsemane. We shall soon see him in his glory. I have longed to see him and to be with him. After the slaughter took place, some local villagers came and uh, found Boniface's body among the other dead. They found him face down in the snow, head split open, clutching in his arms a copy of Ambrose's book. Ambrose, the great church father, Boniface had in his arms a copy of Ambrose's book, The Advantages of Death, a collection of sermons about heaven's joy and resurrection glory. Uh, and, and as I'm, uh, I'm told that that book is now uh, on display in the monastery at Fulda, where Boniface's remains were put to rest. Well, what can we say about Boniface? Boniface certainly died as he had lived. In fact, he had said a few years before his death, he said, I know I shall die, and I shall die on time. He knew he was absolutely immortal until that very moment that God had decreed for him to pass. He said, I know I shall die, and I shall die on time. Therefore, I must make the most of these moments between now and then. And the way I can make the most of these moments is to live them according to the unchanging truth of God. I will not be swayed from this conviction, whether my moments be short or long. 
in perhaps his most famous passage, he says this to his fellow Christians. He says, his fellow missionary workers, he says, let us stand fast in what is right and prepare our souls for trial. Let us neither be dogs that do not bark, nor silent onlookers, nor paid servants who run away before the wolf. Instead, where the battle rages, let us find ourselves. Run towards the roar of the lion. Run towards the roar of battle. That is where Christ's most glorious victories shall be won. That's Boniface's legacy. Run towards the roar. Don't sit there silent when God's truth must be spoken and shouted out. Don't run away when danger approaches. Run towards the battle. That's where Christ's servants are to be found. There's no real way to take a man like Boniface and distill the lessons of his life into a few short points. But I do want to try here, wrapping this up. I just want to give you a few more things to think about. Boniface was certainly not without his faults. Uh, He could be harsh with other Christians when he disagreed with them. He put way too much confidence in the centralized power of the church, and particularly the Pope. Uh, He usually refused to work with Celtic missionaries because... For Celtic missionaries, the Pope was just one more bishop among many, and they allowed their priests to marry and had a number of of different customs, things he had been familiar with as a boy, but after he was commissioned by the Pope, he very much opposed those things. So he, he had his flaws, no doubt. But there's also no doubt he was a great, great man. Boniface had amazing courage in the face of consistent and constant opposition. Boniface called paganism's bluff and exposed the idols of the Germanic tribes for what they were. He did not back down from speaking the truth, even when it put him in a place of great danger. He wasn't afraid to plow the field of iron. And again, that field didn't break him. He broke the field. That kind of boldness, that kind of courage about the gospel and the the mission of the gospel is needed in the church today. I think compared to Boniface, most of us in the church today are wimps and cowards. Boniface shows us a better way, a way of courage. Boniface also was a man of vision. He dreamed big dreams, kingdom-sized dreams, you could say. He was a man of great vision and therefore great action. He was not a pragmatist. He he never took the easy way out. He was always a man of principle. And he thought in terms of the long term and the big picture. He didn't think just in terms of years and decades. He thought in terms of generations and centuries. Again, compared to Boniface, most of us in the church today think too small. Our vision is too small. Our prayers are too small. We focus on the short term, even the immediate. But because Boniface looked at the big picture and long term, he was able to transform his culture. He indeed changed the world. He wasn't just interested in converting a few individuals here and there to Christian faith. He wanted to disciple these tribal peoples, carry out the Great Commission, build a Christian civilization where before there had been nothing but savage and barbaric paganism. And that's why he not only planted churches, but also established schools and built libraries 
that would house great works of literature and poetry. He wanted to expose these barbaric peoples to great art and music. And of course, the Bible was at the center of it all, radiating out from the Bible, this Christian culture as Christ's lordship is lived out in every area of life. And finally, perhaps most importantly, Boniface understood spiritual warfare. He was fearless in confronting demonic powers. He knew demonic power is real. There really are spiritual hosts of wickedness. And he also knew that Christ's power was greater, that the light of Christ's gospel could drive out that darkness. He went to evangelize a people steeped in the occult, a people who were steeped in the worship of idols. The, the pagans lived in a haunted world. Boniface entered into that haunted world and drove the demons out by the power of Christ. He exorcised these tribes. Indeed, it's very interesting to me. We have 15 of his sermons that have come down to us. The 15th and final sermon, perhaps the sermon he had just preached to that group that was going to be baptized before he was murdered. It is about the renunciation of the devil in baptism. And in that sermon, he talks about how all those who are baptized renounce the works of Satan. And he describes those works of Satan and embrace the way of life given to us in Christ Jesus. See, Boniface knew that the so-called culture wars are really spiritual battles against principalities and powers, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. And so if the culture war is really a spiritual war, the weapons of the culture war won't work. We have to use spiritual weapons. That's what Boniface did. How did he conquer? Through preaching the gospel, through praying, through singing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. Through proclaiming God's word, establishing well-ordered, well-disciplined churches, through baptism and the Eucharist. These were the weapons of his warfare. And with these weapons, he conquered. He understood the culture wars are really spiritual battles and must be fought in the power of God's Spirit. We need to learn the same lesson. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the great example of Boniface, his life, his legacy, his faith, his impact. We thank you for the role that he played in forming a Christian civilization. And while in so many ways that Christian civilization seems to be dissipating and winding down, in the world around us. We thank you that new Christian civilizations are popping up in other parts of the world. And Father, we pray that we might have the strength and courage of Boniface to stand against the spiritual forces of darkness in our own world. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us more Bonifaces, more men of great courage and vision and faith. Do this, that your kingdom might grow, the nations might be discipled, and the great commission fulfilled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.